Please turn with me to James chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 9 and 10. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10 to keep us in context here. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to hear your word this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that your word this morning would search out each and every one of our hearts and reveal things to us that we have not seen. Father, we ask that you would teach us how to properly view our sin in light of this text. And we ask that you would help us to look to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been looking at what does it mean to truly repent? James is writing to believers here, believers who have been indulging in sin, and he is calling them to repentance. We saw last week that repentance means a a cleansing of the hands, a turning away from, from our deeds of sin. But we also saw that our sinful actions come from the heart. So, so James deals with the heart. We need to purify our hearts as well. The heart is the problem. So true repentance includes the heart, the desires, the motives. And today James takes it one step farther, and he addresses the emotions as well. The, 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 the heart that is truly penitent will be sorrowful for sin. Thomas Watson said, As the heart bears a chief part in sinning, so it must in sorrowing. This is a touchy subject because we we don't like to get our emotions involved in things. But but the point that James is making here in this text is that if, if we are truly penitent, it will involve the emotions as well. This sorrowing for sin will be seen in the emotions. And so he gives us three commands here. Lament, mourn, and weep. What does it mean to lament? The the ESV translates this as be wretched. 
That this means to be miserable, to, to be unhappy, to be full of misery. MacArthur notes that it carries the idea of being broken and feeling wretched. It is exactly the feeling expressed by the tax collector spoken of by Jesus, who was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. James is telling his readers, a Christian audience, to be miserable. Now, is this... A contradiction to what he said in chapter 1 to rejoice always. He said in, 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 in every trial, rejoice. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Is he contradicting Paul? Who said rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I, I say to you, rejoice. Is he contradicting Paul who said that, that the fruits of the Spirit include joy and peace? But now James is saying, be miserable. Don't have joy. Don't have peace. Be miserable. Well, consider the context here. Once again, James is, is, is addressing believers who are, who are living in sin. They, they have given themselves over to sin. So much so that he refers to them as adulteresses. That they're spiritually unfaithful to God. And he addresses them as sinners, a term used usually only for unbelievers, and he addresses them as double-minded. So, so these are people who have given themselves over to sin, and James' message to them is be miserable. James is revealing a principle here. Ordinarily, we would say that the Christian should have joy in every situation. And, and even when we, we sin, it should not take away our joy because if, if, if we're looking to our performance as the source of our joy, that's idolatry. We, we are not to be the source of our own joy, but, but Christ is to be the source of our joy. But it is also true that the professing Christian who is living in unrepentant sin needs to be concerned. That the professing Christian living in habitual sin is in a dangerous place. That that lifestyle is inconsistent with true Christianity. So the person who is living that way needs to be concerned with whether or not they have true saving faith. So the principle James is giving us here is this. The professing Christian who is living inconsistently with his profession of faith, indulging in sin, should not have joy. They need to be broken over their sins. This is what he's saying. Again, this is not the person who, who's occasionally struggling with a sin here and there. But this is the person being mastered by sin, living in unrepentant sin on a daily basis. And if that describes you, dear friend, you need to be miserable. You, you need to be broken over your sin. C consider the alternative. Should God just allow you to go on living in sin with no misery? What a terrible place to be. 
You ever, you ever think about that? You don't want to be miserable over your sins. You don't want to be broken. You don't like the way that feels. But, but what is the alternative? The alternative is that God leaves you in your sin. And eventually you prove yourself to be an unbeliever. This does not make us feel warm and cozy inside, does it? Well, it's not meant to. You have no right to peace or joy if you are living in sin on a daily basis. Should those who profess the name of Christ be filled with with joy and happiness while, while living like the world, God forbid, should we tell the, the professing Christian who, who, who is living in, in a dangerous way that everything is okay? Jesus loves you. It's okay. Live how you want. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Should, should we say this? James did not think so. He said, be miserable. And this is also a a sign of true faith. If God allows you to go on living in sin without disciplining you, it is because you don't belong to him. This is what the scripture teaches. If you are his child, he will not allow you to go on in sin and to go astray. He, He will chastise you and he will discipline you. And he does this by breaking you in your sins. And sometimes God does allow us to go on. For an extended time. But if we truly belong to him, he will bring us back. He will break us over our sinfulness. Do we have an example of this in scripture? What about King David, who we talked about multiple times? Guilty of adultery and murder. We know he sinned. And also we know he did what? He repented. Psalm 51. But, But how much time was between his sin and his repentance. Most believe it was about a year. A year's worth of time. After committing adultery and murder, an entire year goes by before he acknowledges his sin before God, before he confesses his sin, and before he repents of his sin. Perhaps he was happy during that time. Had a false sense of joy. Had the sense of satisfaction. He, he had gotten the woman who he wanted and, and he got away with it because he committed murder. And, and, and he thought perhaps that, that I'm all in the clear now. Everything is going according to plan. I'm content. I have joy. But because this man belonged to God, God disturbed him. What did he do? He sent him a messenger, Nathan the prophet. And, and Nathan told him a story of, about a great injustice that had taken place in the land. There was a, a rich man who had much and he, and he took away the, the little ewe lamb of a, of a poor person who had nothing else. And he builds up this story showing this great sin that had taken place. And David becomes enraged. I mean, he's angry. And he says, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. 
And he shall repay fourfold because he did not have pity on this man. He's enraged. He's he's outraged at this great sin that took place. And what does Nathan tell him? David, you are the man. This is you, David. But, But by the way, let's just think about this for a moment. David here depicts us quite well. David is, a, David is guilty of, of adultery and murder. And he's outraged about a man who stole a lamb. Do you see that? He, he's so blind in his sin at the moment that he's ready to judge a person harshly, saying this person is worthy of death when he's guilty of murder and adultery. Blinded in his sin totally blinded and even hypocritical in his sin. And how often are we this way? Even this morning, maybe, maybe you hear about the need to repent and, and the only thing you can think of is other people in your life or other people in the church who need to repent instead of thinking about yourself. This is our nature. This is what we do. But Nathan approaches David and he tells him this story and, and he does this on purpose so that David's David's rage would would build up, his anger would build up, and his sense of justice would build up. And then he he pours all of that upon David. He turns the, the script to David and says, this is you. You are the one who are guilty of death. You are the one who need to pay fourfold. You are the guilty one, David. And he sees his sin with clarity for the first time in this year. And as a result of this, he is absolutely broken. By the way, what what is the proper response here? Well, God was in the deliverer. It doesn't matter. I know I'm guilty. No, that's not how David responds. How does he respond? He's broken. In, in, In Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance here, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Why is he praying this? Because he's in misery now. His joy and gladness is gone. He's broken over his sins. He, he, listen to what he says. He says, let the bones you have broken rejoice. His bones are crushed, as it were. He, he, is, he is crushed under the conviction of his sin. The, the weight of his sin is now upon him. And he even prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I once had joy, but, but in my sin, I, I was blind. And, and now all of a sudden, I, I see my guilt before God. And it's crushing me. And I don't have joy. This is what James is saying. Look at what happened to David. Did you see how his joy is gone During this time of brokenness? Do do, do you see how he has no peace? Do do you see how he feels crushed under his guilt? That's what James is saying. That's the appropriate response to the person who has been living in sin, indulging in sin. The the appropriate response is not to say, well, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds, all the more. Let's just take advantage of that. The appropriate response is to be miserable. Dear friend. You need to be miserable if you are living, indulging in sin. 
You, you need to be miserable. You need to be unhappy. This is a necessary component of true repentance. And I want you to notice something here. Because I know this sounds harsh. But notice that Nathan did not bring David a flowery message. He brought him a hard message. It is you. David, you are the man. And not only that, because you have sinned against God, your, your child is going to die. Sin has consequences. He brought David a strong, hard message. Why? Because that's what David needed. David did not need to be coddled in his sin after living an entire year in unrepentant sin. No, he needed to be confronted. And so he was. And this is precisely what James is doing. He's gone through all of the sins that his readers are committed in, committing in this book. And he reaches this point where he says, you adulterous people, you're unfaithful to God. You're, you're sinners. You're double-minded. This is, this is the Nathan wake-up call here. To, to the Christian who is living in sin. This, this needs to be your, your, your moment with Nathan where, where, you, where you become aware Maybe for the first time in a long time of your sinfulness before God. Perhaps you were once walking closely with God. But for some reason, you begin indulging in sin. And the next thing you know, an entire year has gone by and you're just living in sin, unrepentant, calling yourself a Christian. This is a wake-up call to you. Be Wretched. That is the, the, the proper response. And he takes it one step farther. And he says, and mourn. MacArthur notes that the idea of, of mourning here is that of deep grief and remorse, a complete despair that laments over sin the way someone mourns the death of a family member or close Friend, the word means sorrow, grief. How many of you have experienced the overwhelming grief of losing a close loved one? The, the, the pain, the, the, the constant sorrow that, that, that can't be appeased. The, the anguish that you, that you feel within over, over losing this person. Have you ever felt that way over your sins before a holy God? This is what James is calling us to mourn over those sins of yours. The way in which you would mourn over a lost loved one. Grieve. Be sorrowful. Mourning is a necessary element of true repentance. Thomas Watson said, a woman may as well expect to have a child without pangs as one can have repentance without sorrow. It's not possible. What did our Lord say? Blessed are those who mourn. Douglas Moose says he calls on God's people to exhibit a heartfelt sorrow for sin that is the mark of true Repentance. This is the mark of true repentance. Do you mourn over your sins? If you are living in sin right now, you need to grieve and you need to mourn over your sins against God. 
And you, you need to, to mourn the way that a father or mother mourns when he loses a child. You need to mourn and grieve. And listen, this is not just a mourning and grieving over the consequences of sin. This is mourning and grieving over the fact that you have sinned against the holy God. Listen, true repentance leads to mourning over sin, not the consequences. True repentance is is mourning over sin, not the embarrassment caused by sin. Again, quoting Watson, he says, it is sorrow for the offense rather than for the punishment. God's law has been infringed and his love abused. A man may be sorry and yet not repent. Hypocrites grieve only for the bitter consequences of sin. Godly sorrow, however, is chiefly for the trespass against God so that even if there were no consequences to smite, no devil to accuse, no hell to punish, yet the soul would still be grieved because of the prejudice done to God. And he points us to David as an example. What does King David say? My sin is ever before me. And Watson points out, David does not say, thy sword threatened is ever before me. It is his sin. He says, oh, that I should offend so good a God, that I should grieve my comforter. This breaks my heart. Have you ever prayed with David? My sin is ever before me. And listen, this is not just mourning for sins that we've committed outwardly, that other people have seen. This is a mourning for the heart sins that we've talked about. Not just a mourning, again, for for what you've been caught in, but, but a mourning for the things that no one else knows about, just you and God. Do you mourn over those sins? Do you grieve over those sins? Secret sins. Does Does brokenness over sinning against God's law and his grace, even just in your heart, does it cause you to mourn? And how is mourning expressed? How does one express their their misery and their sorrow? Weeping. James says, and weep. Lament, mourn, and weep. Dear friends, do you know anything about weeping over your sin? Or is that a foreign concept to you? And you say, I I just don't understand that. Do you know anything about that? Listen to me. If you, like James readers, have been indulging in sin, listen to me. The proper response is to be wretched and to mourn and, and literally to weep. To shed tears over the sins you have committed against God. What was Peter's response? When he realized that he had sinned against his Lord by denying him three times. What did Peter do? 
Scripture tells us he went out and wept bitterly. That's it right there. He recognized what he had done. The the sin he had committed there and he wept bitterly. You're saying, are you you denying Christ like Peter right now? But but not before men, but, but, but denying him by living as though he did not free you from sin. If you are, you need to go out and weep bitterly with Peter. Are you denying Christ but by living like the world? If so, you need to weep over your sins. Weep bitterly like Peter. Weep over your sins, dear saint. Weep over the, the, those sins that, that made the death of your Savior necessary. Weep over those sins that, that nailed him to a tree. And, 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 and weep over those sins that, that thrust the spear through his side. Weep over those sins which made the shedding of his blood necessary. And weep over those sins which made the drinking of the fullness of God's wrath necessary for you. Weep over the fact that as a Christian, not only have you sinned against God's holy law, but you've sinned against his love and his grace and his mercy. It's one thing to sin against a distant king to commit treason. It's another thing for you to commit treason against a king who has pardoned your recent treachery and who has brought you into his kingdom, into his home, and adopted you as his son and given you an inheritance. And then you go and you betray him by sinning against him. That's what we've done as believers when we sin against God. Not only have we sinned against law, but we've sinned against grace and mercy and love. Weep over that. He says next, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy be turned to gloom. The, the, the sinner sins against God. And, and he goes on laughing. Again, can you imagine David? He, he got away with it. He, he got what, what he wanted. And, he, and he's gleeful now with life because he, he's got the thing that he wanted and he got away with it. And there's this laughter there. Or as Proverbs 10 says, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. John Gill says about that verse that it is a laughing matter to him. He commits sin, and when he is done, he laughs at it. Instead of being ashamed of it, instead of being humbled for it, does that describe you, dear saint? Have you been living in sin, and after you sin, you you go on laughing, you've gotten away with it, there's no conviction for it, you just go on living in it. And having a jolly good time while you're at it. If that's you, James says, let that laughter of yours be turned to mourning. He's saying, stop living gleefully in your sin. Turn it into mourning. What did Christ say? Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep and mourn. Douglas Moo says the the biblical writers suggest that that all persons will inevitably mourn for their spiritual state. They, They can wait to mourn until it is too late when God has brought his judgment 
Or they can mourn now. Which will you choose? Have fun in your sin now and mourn later. Or mourn over that sin now and brokenness before God and laugh later on. And let your joy be turned to gloom. He's not talking about godly joy here. Biblical joy. No, he, he, he's talking about a, a false sense of joy. You, you seem happy in your sins. You got what you wanted. You, you seem happy. No, no, no one has confronted you yet because of your sins. No one has caught you because of your sins. And, and it kind of makes you happy that you're, you're indulging in what you wanted to indulge in. He says, let that joy, that happiness be turned to gloom. Gloom is the appropriate response here, not happiness. MacArthur notes James is not condemning legitimate laughter or joy, but rather the flippant, trivial, worldly, self-centered, sensual kinds that unbelievers revel in despite and often because of their sinful pleasures. A believer has no business living that way. Gleeful, happy, joyful, while totally rejecting their God by by living like pagans. If you belong to God and you're living that way, he, he, He won't let you stay there. But you will be broken. You will mourn. You will weep. That laughter will be turned to mourning. That that happiness, that joy will be turned to gloom as he humbles you before him. And once again, praise God for that brokenness. Right? Because this leads us to repentance. Brokenness is is an amazing thing to the Christian. Don't fight this. Listen, some of you even right now, you you want to be broken over your sins, but but you're you're, going to try to fight it. You're going to try to hold it in. Why? Because I don't like the way that makes me feel. I don't want to be broken over my sins. I want to be happy. I want to be joyful. But don't you understand that the only way to have biblical joy and happiness and peace is to actually be broken over your sins? The point of brokenness, misery, mourning, weeping, is repentance, restoration, forgiveness. The point of this is not despair. Listen, this is not a message of despair. This is actually a message of hope. The the, the point of being broken, the point of this hard truth is to lead you to a place where where you are truly sorrowful for your sins so that you will be lifted up by God. How far, dear friend, how far do we need to take this morning? Because again, this is not a morning that drives us to the grave. This is a morning that leads to repentance. So, so how much mourning is enough? Watson says the, the medicine shows itself strong enough when it has purged out the disease. 
that the Christian has arrived at a sufficient measure of sorrow when the love of sin is purged out. Are you sorrowful enough for your sins before God? Do you still love your sin? Have you repented of your sin? If you have not repented, the sorrow is not enough. You need to grieve more. You need to grieve and mourn and weep until the medicine is strong enough to lead you to repentance. David did not go on living in sin in his psalm of repentance. No, his sorrow was enough to break him and lead him to the place where he repented and he confessed his sins before God. If your sins have become bitter to you, you're ready to repent before God. Listen, your brokenness is sufficient. If it has led you to repentance, it it is sufficient. And now you need to recognize that you are not to go into despair. Your your brokenness is enough once it has led you there. Your, Your sorrow for sin must lead. Listen, I'm going to emphasize this again and again. Your sorrow for sin needs to lead to repentance, not to despair. Listen to what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And perhaps when he wrote these words, he even had Judas in mind. What what happened with Judas? Judas was a traitor, an apostate. He turned upon Christ. And we read that seeing that he had been condemned, he was remorseful. And he brought back the, the 30 pieces of silver in the temple. And, and, and he, he brought this back to them. He, he's so remorseful that he says, this, this money that you gave me for, for turning in this man, I don't want it. And he threw it at them, threw it on the floor. Remorseful over his sin. But what did he do? After saying, I have sinned by betraying Innocent blood, what did he do? Did did he cast himself upon the mercy of God? Did did he look to Christ? No. He threw down the 30 pieces of, of, of silver in the temple and departed, and he went and hanged himself. That is a sorrow that leads to death. That's not godly sorrow. Listen, godly sorrow is not a sorrow which which makes you go and do something like that in utter despair because you are hopeless. No, godly sorrow leads to repentance and salvation. There's a difference. Repentance. It leads to restoration. 
It leads to confession. Which leads to what? Forgiveness. What did John say? If you say you have no sin, you lie. And the truth is not in you. But, but if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It leads to restoration. And we need to be looking to Christ. Listen, even in our sorrow, even, even in the, the very depths of our sorrow, in our mourning, in our grief over our sins, we must never take our eyes off of Christ. Again, Watson points out that, that spiritual sorrow will sink the heart if the pulley of faith does not raise it. As our sin is, is ever before us, so God's promise must ever be before us. And he says, some have faces so swollen with worldly grief that they can hardly look out of their eyes. But the, that weeping is not good, which blinds the eye of faith. If your sorrow is making you take your eyes off of Christ, it is not a godly sorrow. But again, even when we are in the very depths of brokenness over sins. We need to be hopeful, looking to Christ, throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God, not despairing. And James gives us a promise. He gives us hope. He gives a promise to the, to the person who humbles themselves in this way. And so he says in verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And what is the result of that? And he will lift you up. James says, God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Listen, grace is for the humble. And what do we need when we have sinned against God? We need grace. Grace is given to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. The humility that James is describing here is a brokenness over sin and a recognition of our helplessness before God. In other words, we could say that this is a, a spiritual poverty. We have nothing before him. We're, we're guilty, vile, wretched sinners in his eyes. We have no plea. There's nothing that we can say or do to, to make things right there. We're dependent upon his grace and his mercy. That's humility. That the proud sinner does not acknowledge his sin before God. And he has no brokenness over it. But the humble sinner sees his great need. Here's another test of humility here. Do you see your need before Christ? Before God? Listen, when you sin against God, what, what do you say? Do, do you say, well, at least I'm not like other sinners. At least I don't commit that sin like those people over there. At least I know I'm better than that person. And, and you know, I did sin last week, but I also did a lot of good. That's not humility. We have a, a parable, our Lord told, that, that illustrates this point perfectly he told this parable about the the tax collector 
and the Pharisee. Both, both of these men go to the temple to pray. And how does the Pharisee pray? He stands there and he says with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. What a good man he is. He's not like any of us sinners. But not only is he not like us, he does way more. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Is that repentance? You know, the irony of this parable is that he needed repentance more than anyone. But the only thing he can think to do before God is to talk about how good of a person he is and how much he does. This is not a man broken over his sins. That man does not need to be told about the love of God and need to feel some kind of joy within himself. He needs to be warned of the wrath of God and he needs to be miserable and broken over his sins. But the tax collector, you know, he's the, he's the public sinner. Everybody knows how bad he is. What does this man do? He's broken over his sins. And he stands afar off. I'm too wretched to even approach. And he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. I'm too bad of a sinner for that. But he beat his breast which oftentimes indicated a mourning as, as, as that of a death. When a person died, you, you would beat your breath, your breast in, in other, utter agony. And this is what he's doing. He, he's beating his breast, mourning. And the only thing he says is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The only thing he can say, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything right. I haven't done enough. I'm not a good enough person. But God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does our Lord say? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And listen to this. He, he, James almost quotes him verbatim. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humble himself will be exalted. It was the humble tax collector, broken over his sin, pleading the mercy of God, who walked away justified. And, and by the way, have you ever noticed the connection here between David's psalm of repentance and the repentance of this Pharisee? The only thing the Pharisee says is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does David pray in Psalm 51? Oh, God, be merciful to me. He's not going to despair to the point of death. But he's broken to the point where he knows the only thing he can do is say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen to me, don't, don't be the Judas seeing your sins and, and despairing because of them. Be like David who in sorrow cried out, God, be merciful to me and look to Christ for forgiveness. 
And James says, having humbled yourself before the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. You want to be lifted up? That's the only way to do it. Humble yourselves before the sight of the Lord. Listen, you want to be comforted? Our Lord says the only way to do that is to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You will have no peace and joy in your Christian life until you learn to be broken over your sins. There's so many Christians who are just living in habitual sin and complaining that I don't have peace, I don't have joy. Yes, you need brokenness. This is the mercy of God. He's not allowing you to have peace and joy in your sins because he's trying to lead you to repentance where you can experience true peace and true lasting joy. There is comfort for the wayward Christian. If you will mourn over your sins in repentance... David said that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. If your heart is broken before him, he won't despise it. He'll lift you up. If you're broken and mourning and weeping before him, he'll comfort you. Spurgeon put it this way. I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than when I am weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. Oh, how I can attest to this. So some, of the, some of the greatest times of comfort in my life has been when God has broken me to the point of putting me on my knees and face on the ground because of my sins and weeping over my sins to the point where, where you can't even pray. The only thing you can do when you try to speak is to weep. But the comfort that you receive from, from, from hating your sins that much, the comfort you receive from weeping over your sins is amazing. I have never had such joy and comfort in my life than when I have been able to weep over my sins. And I can't weep over my sins every day. I wish I could. I actually pray, God, help me to mourn and weep over these things. Because I understand that that's when we receive comfort. But notice what Spurgeon said as well. He emphasizes this point. Not just weeping for sin, but, but where? Where does, he, where does he find this great comfort? When he's weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. Because once again, without the cross, your sorrow leads to death. But all of that sorrow, because of Christ, can lead to comfort. And dear friend, if you don't know Christ today, and, and perhaps you, you feel the weight of your sin today, and you, you have never known Christ, you have never professed to be a Christian, He invites you to, to come to Him, to lay down those burdens at His feet. But believe in Him. And you will be saved. Turn from your sins. You will be saved. And he will cleanse you. 
And he will forgive you for everything you have done, for every sin, every offense. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and he will give you his own righteousness so that you have a righteousness with which to stand before the Father. Trust in him today and turn from your sins. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do ask that you would break us over our sins. And that we would see that it's not, it's, it's not to be led to despair, but it's to be led to comfort, true comfort, true joy, true happiness, true peace. Father, help us to see that, that there's no joy, there's no satisfaction in trying to hide our sins or in trying to bury our sins or trying to forget about our sins, but that the only way is repentance. Father, instead of repenting, so many of us try to ignore the guilt, ignore our conscience, or try to excuse our sins. Oh, Father, help us to see that the only way to acknowledge our sin before you. To be broken over that sin and turn from it. And turn to Christ. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.